This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Exodus chapter 20. If you don't know me, my name is Josh Varnado. I'm a pastoral resident here at Cornerstone, and I work with VFC on campus, and I have the privilege to preach this morning. And this summer, we've been moving through the Ten Commandments that God gave the people of Israel after he delivered them from Pharaoh. And, and remember the context in which these commands were given. The, the people of Israel have gathered around Mount Sinai, and God himself is about to speak to them directly. In every other instance, God uses Moses to communicate to the people, but God is addressing the people without a mediator this time. It's a massive moment for the nation of Israel as God gives foundational commands for the rest of the law. It's also important to remember that the commands that God gives are very personal. A couple weeks ago, we were taught that every you in the Ten Commandments is singular. God is addressing every Israelite present, and he's addressing us individually this morning. So our text is Exodus 20, verse 13, but for context, we're going to start in verse 1. This is God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In verse 13, our text this morning, you shall not murder. A couple years ago, I was, well not a couple, about 12 years ago, I was uh, at Advance, the retreat that's happening here in a couple days, and uh, the retreat center was right next to the Ocoee River, so one of the activities that we were going to do in between the sessions was whitewater rafting. Now, I'd never been whitewater rafting before, but I was still excited, and uh, my dad, being the worst-case scenario expert that he is, briefed me multiple times what to do if I fell in. He said, if you fall in, 
get on your back and keep your feet up because your feet might catch a rock and you'll get sucked under. And the safety briefing beforehand basically told me the exact same thing. And before I knew it, I was sitting in the front left part of the boat with my dad and my brothers and a couple other passengers. Our guide, he was a, he was a younger guy. He seemed nice enough, uh, but also joining us on the raft was an older guy who was a guide as well, but he was just enjoying his day off and he wanted to be on the water. So to me, he was pretty much just an extra passenger and uh, didn't think much of him. So we loaded in the boat and we started moving down the river. And as we started to, to pick up speed, I, I saw in the distance a rock that was just protruding out of the water by itself with no other rocks around. And as we got closer, I started to wonder if this guide saw the rock that was right in front of us. But evidently he didn't see it because we hit that rock on my side of the boat and I flipped out of the raft. So literally 200 yards into my first whitewater rafting trip, I was in the water. And somehow at some point my nose started bleeding and uh, all my dad's advice just suddenly came to the front of my mind, just get on your back, keep your feet up so you don't get sucked in underneath the water. So I'm floating down the river, shocked that I'm already in the river and blood is coming out of my nose. And in response, my guide quickly began to try to throw a rope to me. And the older guy stands up and he said, get your client out of the water. So this younger guy, he takes the rope and he's throwing it. And the dude, he doesn't come near me. So I'm floating down the river and the rope is hitting all around me like three or four times. He keeps missing. He throws it and he brings it back. Then he throws it. Then he brings it back. Until eventually, the older guy, he just stood up, told the younger guy to take a seat. And uh, with one throw, he put that rope right in my hands. And for the rest of the trip, this older guide ran the show. <laughs> the younger guy just sat there. I'm not sure what he did. I genuinely don't remember what he did for the rest of the time. But from that point on, that older guide was in control. He skillfully guided us through the rapids and no one else fell out of the boat. This older guide started being a random guy on the boat. But by the end of the trip, he had become the guy who saved my life and was one of the best river navigators I'd ever seen. Our perception, the passengers on the boat, it changed. And so we viewed him differently. He had our respect and my 14-year-old admiration. Oftentimes, our perceived value of an individual will affect how we interact with them. And we see this reality all around us. We see it in how people relate to famous actors or athletes or musicians, just maybe popular people, or in my case, skilled water guides. But the sixth commandment tells us how we should relate with everyone. It, it presents us with a countercultural way of viewing others. We're to respect and value the lives of all people, not just because of who they are or what they've done, but because of what God has said about them in his word. According to God, all people have intrinsic value, and that should result in us treating them a certain way. So our main point, and, and 
what I think we're meant to get from this text is simply this. God has made us in his image. Therefore, value life and love others. God has made us in his image. Therefore, value life and love others. And we're going to see this in the sixth commandment by examining first the reason for the sixth commandment and then the implications of the sixth commandment. So first, the reason for the sixth commandment. What did the sixth commandment mean for the Israelites as they stood before Yahweh at Mount Sinai? What was God commanding them not to do? Was the giver of life, God was commanding the Israelites not to take the life of their fellow human beings. And this command covered a whole spectrum of scenarios, including premeditated murder, involuntary manslaughter, suicide, reckless activity that resulted in a death and accidental killing. Desmond Alexander writes that the sixth commandment is perhaps best understood as stating that no human being may take a human life without divine approval. Now, two quick asides. If we continue to read through the law, we'll find that that God doesn't prohibit capital punishment, uh, self-defense, wars fought for just reasons. But even in allowing those forms of killing, God's purpose, in the words of Philip Ryken, was not the destruction of life, but its preservation. Preserving life was always the motivation. We'll also find that God in his wisdom gave specific punishments to different types of violations. So the man that was guilty of premeditated murder was treated differently than the man guilty of involuntary manslaughter. But ultimately, for the Israelites standing before him in Mount Sinai, God was claiming total lordship over life and death. He is the one who has the authority to take life and to give life. But in giving this command, God was also making a claim about who we are as his creation. On the sixth day of creation, God made man. Genesis 1, 26-27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Distinct from the rest of creation, man was made like God, to represent God in creation. Man was made to reflect the characteristics of his creator. No other creature in creation has a sense of right and wrong. No other creature possesses a spirit by which they commune with the living God. No other creature has the mental capacity of mankind and the ability to think in the abstract. The most beautiful starry night that you've ever seen, the most majestic waterfall, the reddest sunset, the fastest river, the cutest puppy, while amazing, do not reflect the nature of their creator like we do. I had a Labrador retriever growing up named Belle, and Belle was one of the sweetest dogs that you would ever meet. She obeyed. She didn't go to the bathroom in the house. She loved to play fetch. She was gentle with small kids. She just loved to be with my family, and even if you weren't a dog person, you'd have to admit 
that Belle was a great dog. At least, that's what I thought. But even Belle, a wonderful creature, a gift from God, was different than me. Belle didn't discuss theology with me. She didn't have a spiritual life. She didn't have a relationship with God. So despite all the incredible things about her, she wasn't made in the image of God. Mankind is unique. According to David, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. He writes in Psalm 8, he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Nothing else that was created was said to have been made in the image of God. We are the creatures most like our God in all the universe. And I think we're meant to feel a real sense of value when we recognize this reality. We're meant to be affected by the fact that we are the pinnacle of God's good creation. We're able to have a relationship with him. We're able to enjoy him as our God. Wayne Grudem writes, he said, it would be good for us to reflect on our likeness to God more often. It will probably amaze us to realize that when the creator of the universe wanted to create something in his image, something more like himself than all the rest of creation, he made us. Mankind was given special value as the head of creation. And even though that value has been marred and distorted because of sin, mankind still holds the status of being made in the image of God. So regardless of age, ethnicity, economic status, occupation, gender, health, mental capacity, all people have intrinsic value because they are created in the image of the almighty creator God. So the sixth commandment was given precisely because God has imaged himself in human beings. And human life is therefore valuable to him. John Calvin writes, our neighbor bears the image of God. To use him, abuse, or misuse him is to do violence to the person of God who images himself in every human soul. To any, in any way attack another person is to attack the pinnacle of God's creation and to attack God himself, the creature upon whom God has placed glory and honor. And it's because of what God says about the value of life that most Christians are opposed to abortion. Because if this command, if this command really did come from Yahweh on Mount Sinai, then abortion, no matter how it's spun, cannot be supported. It just can't. The sixth commandment is clear. Likewise, suicide is an action that disobeys the sixth commandment because in committing suicide, one is declaring worthless what God has called priceless. 
And I'm sure that there are those of us who have had family members or friends contemplate taking their own life. And I'm sure there are those of us who have personally thought about taking our own life. But when we look at the sixth commandment, at the same time, we, we see that suicide is both direct disobedience to God and that God cares about your life more than you could ever imagine. Kevin DeYoung helpfully writes, he says, your life is precious to God even when you have concluded that it's pointless. The narrative in your head might be that your life is no longer worth living. But the narrative in scripture is completely different. There's hope for us in God's word. It helps us think rightly about who we are before God and who we are to others. And if you're struggling to believe, believe this, I would plead with you to talk to our pastors. Counsel is a gift from God. And they're equipped to give you counsel rooted in scripture. Because we bear the image of God, we are forbidden to, to cause harm to ourselves or to others. But we see later in scripture that the implications of this command go beyond physical harm. We find in the New Testament that not only does this command keep us from taking precious life, but it also speaks to how we think about one another at the heart level and what we say and do. So let's look at our second point, the implications of the sixth commandment. And there's no better place to look for how to apply this command practically to our lives than Matthew 5. In this chapter, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself addresses what it looks like to obey the sixth command. Now it's important that we pay attention to how Jesus interprets our passage and, and really the whole Old Testament for that matter. Remember, he doesn't just come along and completely abolish the law and everything that was given in the Old Testament. No, he fulfills the law because he obeyed it perfectly. And that transforms our relationship to the law because we have peace now with God through Christ and his perfect adherence to the law. And our relationship with the law has changed. It's different. Now we obey the commands of God because they're principles for living a life that is pleasing to God. We're not saved through them. But how Jesus interprets the sixth command is relevant for us today. And while he does summarize all the commandments and all the prophets and the law in, in two things, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, he does provide specific detail and what it looks like to apply the sixth commandment. So please turn your Bibles to Matthew 5, 21 and 26. Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And I want to look briefly just at a couple points of application that Jesus lays out for us in this text. He broadens what is prohibited in the sixth commandment by addressing our hearts and our words. And then he tells us how to positively apply this command to our relationship. So first, Jesus draws attention to our hearts in light of the sixth commandment. He says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He's concerned about what's going on in our hearts. And according to Jesus, the sins of the heart are not lesser than, than physical sins. Both are judged equally. Kevin DeYoung writes, he says, you and I can be 100% murder free, but still face the wrath of God if our life is marked by anger, bitterness, invective, insult, and rage. If this is the case, how often do we disobey and violate this command? And even as, as I was preparing this week, I, I just thought about how often my heart is, is angry <laughs> in some degree. When someone's driving 50 miles an hour in the left lane, I get angry. Or if I read something online that I disagree with that I think is bogus, I'm tempted to get angry. We can forget that those around us have intrinsic worth as image bearers of God when they annoy or irritate us. People become a, a means to get what we want. And when they don't deliver, we murder them in our hearts. It's a sobering reality. It's a sobering reality when we, when we consider the fact that the secret things that we feel and we think that no one else knows about, Jesus considers to be in direct violation to the sixth commandment. It's important that we pay attention to our hearts. Second, Jesus draws attention to our words in light of the sixth commandment. Look at the second part of verse 22. It says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire or the hell of fire. The anger in our hearts often finds expression in what we say. Jesus says later in Matthew 12, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words have power and they have the ability to deeply affect those around us. Our words are deadly if they're motivated by anger and contempt. And James warns us about the power of the tongue. In James 3, he says, no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So speaking to one another in contempt, saying you fool to others, doesn't, doesn't reflect a love for and a valuing of someone who is made in the image of God. What we say to one another matters because of our status as image bearers. We're forbidden in the sixth commandment to cause any harm 
to others. Because of what we say is so powerful, our words have the, have the potential to cause damage to the spirit of others. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes of Matthew 5, he says, Killing does not only mean destroying life physically. It means still more trying to destroy the spirit and the soul, destroying the person in any shape or form. So we need to ask ourselves and really take this seriously. When are we, when are we tempted to speak in anger? When are we tempted to lash out in annoyance? Much damage can be done to the pinnacle of God's creation when the anger in our hearts is manifested by our words. Finally, Jesus teaches us how to act in light of the sixth commandment. He says in verse 23, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Offering a gift at the altar for the current reader or the current listeners that Jesus is talking to, that, that meant going to Jerusalem. And presumably, Jesus was speaking in Galilee, all right? So Jerusalem would have been about 80 miles away from where Jesus is talking. So he's using an extreme scenario here. He's saying if if you're going to offer your gift at the altar in Jerusalem and you travel 80 miles to get there and you walk up to the altar and then you realize you have unreconciled conflict with your neighbor back in Galilee, Jesus is saying, you walk the 80 miles back and you reconcile with your brother. It's an extreme example, but it's meant to get our attention. This is how far we go to maintain peace with others. Theologian R.T. France writes, the improbability of the scenario emphasizes Jesus' point that the importance of right relationships demands decisive action. This then is the positive counterpart to the anger and abuse condemned in verse 22. It puts in the form of a vivid practical example the principle which Paul lays down in Ephesians 4.26, do not let the sun go down on your anger. The point of the sixth commandment was not just to prohibit the taking of life or to prohibit angry thoughts, but it was, it was instead meant to inform how we actually treat each other, how we live in relationship with each other. About five or six years ago, I was in the Denver airport and had just finished a meal at the airport Applebee's, um, as one goes to in an airport, and I saw Questlove walk right in front of me, 20 yards away. Now, if you don't know who Questlove is, Rolling Stone magazine placed him in the top 100 drummers of all time. So, it's a big deal. It's a big deal for me. I see him. I'm like, wow, that's Questlove right there, 20 yards in front of me. And among other things, he's the drummer for The Roots, and uh, he also plays on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. So because I love his drumming style, and given the fact that he's just a famous dude, I wanted to meet him. So I walked up to him and uh, got in his way a little bit, and he's walking to his flight, and he said he'd take a picture with me. So we take a selfie together while he's walking to his flight. He was very gracious. But because I knew 
who Questlove was, I acted a certain way. I knew he was significant because of what he'd been able to accomplish in his career. So I, I, I wanted to get my picture with him. I wasn't getting my picture with just anybody in the Denver airport. I wanted my picture with Questlove. The fact that he was who he was prompted me to act a certain way. The point is, because of the far greater value that God has placed on human beings, positive action is naturally required to obey the sixth command. We're not, we're not commanded to do the bare minimum. So we're not supposed to walk away from this text thinking, well, as long as I don't murder anyone, I'm good. Or as long as I don't lose it on someone on I-40 going home, I've obeyed this commandment. Keeping the sixth commandment does not mean going to the Smokies, locking yourself in a cabin and not speaking to anybody. Because sure, you're not murdering, <laughs> you're not killing anyone, but you're missing the point. There's supposed to be active, positive action that comes from the obedience of this command. Again, Lloyd-Jones insightfully writes, he says, this is so wise. It is possible for us to face the law of God as we find it in the Bible, but so to interpret and define it as to make it something which we can keep very easily because we only keep it negatively. So we may persuade ourselves that all is well as long as you and I accept the letter and forget the whole spirit. Content and meaning, we may persuade ourselves that we're perfectly righteous face-to-face -face with the law. God is calling us to think about, to speak to, to act towards others in a way that honors the spirit of the sixth commandment, not just the letter, to keep it positively and not just negatively. Obeying the sixth, it goes, it goes so far beyond refraining from killing or anger. It means, it means loving our neighbors, it means actively seeking their good, going out of our way. Like the, like the Good Samaritan, we're called to go out of our way to show love to those made in the image of God. But the most profound and motivating example of how, of how to fulfill this command came from the one who actually gave it. God incarnate, Jesus Christ, showed us what perfect obedience to this command was supposed to look like. While he was on earth, he modeled everything that he taught in Matthew 5. And everything that he thought, spoke, and did, he perfectly obeyed the sixth commandment. He perfectly cared about the good of others when we didn't. He actively moved towards people in love. He actively showed compassion. Though he was the son of God, he served others. And he counted others as significant. He deeply cared about their well-being. And not only did he perfectly obey the sixth commandment, but he was the victim of those who disobeyed it. So he didn't, he didn't hate. He was hated. He didn't kill, but he was killed. But he endured it so that we might have hope that we might be reconciled to God. He gave his life so that we could be at peace with God, that we could be reconciled to God. Because apart from his forgiveness, we're in a rough spot. John says in 1 John, he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know 
that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Apart from grace, murderers like ourselves would be destined to face the wrath of God. But Peter's sermon in Acts 2, at Pentecost, he's speaking to a, a large gathering of people in Jerusalem. He speaks to the hope that we have in Christ. Peter said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And this is, their, this is the people's response after they hear Peter's words. He's, he's just accused them of you, you killed the Son of God. You broke the sixth commandment. This is what they said. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, what shall we do? They recognize their need for grace. They recognized the fact that they were in the wrong. They had killed Jesus. And because of that, they were guilty. But listen to what Peter says. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And like the people in Acts 2, this promise is available for us. Though we're murderers whose sin put Christ on the tree, who daily murder in our hearts, in our words, in our actions, we've been brought near because of Christ. We are lawbreakers, but we've been brought near because of what Christ has done. As saved sinners, we're a new creation now. We've received the Holy Spirit, and now the Holy Spirit's at work in us so we can obey the sixth command. We can seek the good of others. We can love others. We can live at peace with others. So let's not leave this morning condemned. I think it's really easy to do that. You just, at least for me, when I was, when I was preparing this message, I just started to think, man, I, I fail a lot. I screw up a lot. I think in anger almost just instinctively sometimes. Like I can't even stop, you know? Like I am always fighting this. And I was convicted of that. But I don't think we're meant to walk out feeling condemned. I don't, I don't think that's the point. Let's let God's word convict us. Let's let the spirit do his work. Then let's turn to Christ Let's enjoy grace, and then let's seek to obey him with joy. Let's enjoy the grace that Christ has given. Our hope and our motivation to obey this command comes from Christ Jesus alone. John says in 1 John 4, he says, we love because he first loved us. The grace that we've been shown should motivate us to show grace to others, to seek peace, with others, to love others, to seek reconciliation with others. Other people should be more significant to us 
than ourselves. And we please God when we value people made in his image, when we seek to love them and actively do good to them. We please God. And he's going to give us help as we seek to do this. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for your commands. Thank you for teaching us how to live. Thank you that you're wise. You know what's best. Lord, we pray that you would help us obey you. Give us strength to obey the sixth commandment. Lord, we need help. We are weak apart from your grace. Thank you that Christ perfectly obeyed this commandment for us. Thank you that we are right with you, not because of our works, but because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Thank you for the grace that you've shown us. Give us strength this week, Lord. Help us. Help us love those around us. We love because you first loved us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.